Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of the Middle Grade Ninja Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I've got good news and I've got some bad news. Uh, the good news is I've got two new books available, uh, the first of which is Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. I wrote the first draft of Rob's story when I was 11 years old and in the fifth grade. That version is included with the new edition, complete with full illustrations by 11-year-old me. Um, I have been rethinking and rewriting that story ever since through many, many different variations. At one point, it was a template for the Banneker Bones trilogy. Uh, it has been through a lot of changes, but I'm most excited about this version that's available to you now. Uh, Rob is an adventure-seeking worm. He burrows to the surface with his bunch on a rainy spring morning just to be swooped up by a passing robin. Uh, she carries him way up into the sky, but not to worry, he wriggles free only to land on the roof of a human house. How's he going to get down? And if he does, he's surrounded by nasty yellow jackets, a sizzling hot driveway, colonies of warring ants, a giant spider. There's a whole pond full of worm-hungry koi. When you're a worm, uh, almost everything in your average human backyard is out to eat you. So Rob's got his work cut out for him. Uh, it's an exciting, action-packed story that I also think is a little bit funny. Uh, I hope that you'll check that out. Uh, my other novel is Goodbye to Grandma, and that one is about sixth grader Haley Smith, uh, who comes of age by coming to terms with the death of her grandmother. Uh, it is my most personal story. When I was in the sixth grade, my grandmother died, and I was unable to cry at her funeral. It took me a very long time to process my grief. And since I'm publishing this book now, some would say I'm still processing it. Um, I hope that you'll check out both of those books. I hope you'll enjoy them. I hope that you'll feel compelled to write a review, help me promote them in any way that you can. That would mean the world to me. Uh, so that's the good news. Two new books available for you right now. Um, the less good news uh, is that I, have, my personal circumstances have changed in such a way that I am not going to be able to continue hosting the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, it has been one of the great thrills of my life to have chatted with so many amazing guests. I can't believe the, the people I've had the, the opportunity to sit down and talk with. I have learned so much about writing, publishing, life, and I hope you've learned some things as well. Um, I hope the show has been helpful to you, esteemed audience. I, I couldn't have done it without you, and I so appreciate your support uh, through the years as we've done this. Um, I don't know if or when I'll be able to come back to the show. It's my hope that someday that I will. Um, but in the meantime, I want to offer my most sincere thank you to you and to everyone who has been a part of this show and, and just the incredible experience it's been. We're going to go up to episode 212, and then after that, there will not be any additional episodes for at least a while. But stay subscribed to the feed. Um, hopefully at some point I'll, I'll be able to come back to you, if not to host a regular podcast. I'll at least have some updates for you about some other things I may be working on. Also keep an eye on middlegradeninja.com. Uh, every week I end the show with God willing I'm alive. I'll see you next week. But today I'll just say God willing I'm alive. I hope to see you soon. Well, let's welcome our guest, Janine Lee. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Rob. So um, I'm, I've got all kinds of, of questions for you, uh, but esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me talking about their background when you're right here and you know it better than I do. Uh, so if you would give esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. 
Great. Um, so I am a literary agent. I opened my own agency in February of 2022. Um, and I before that, um, I interned at Sterling Lord Literistic for about six months. And then I went to Sheldon Fogelman Agency, where I spent the bulk of my career, um, almost 12 years, starting off as an assistant, um, an agent assistant, and then moving over to foreign rights, um, and which I continued to handle for, for most of my time there um, as I slowly built up my list. Um, yeah, so uh, I represent only children's and YA authors and illustrators. Gotcha. And that's, uh, that's who I assume is mostly tuning in to hear us. And in fact, I assume that before we're done, they're already going to have their query half complete. And that's what they do to you. Um, so originally you're at Bucknell University, you get an honors in English and creative writing, you graduate summa cum laude, right? Uh, which was impressive, right? I don't know if I'm, I'm not even qualified to say that, right? Am I saying it right? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, you you major in, in 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 creative writing, so and you're you're interning with a magazine West Branch. So, what's the original plan when you get started? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I always had an interest in in publishing, um, but I wanted to to study creative writing to see if I wanted to you know write or or what. Um, I studied a lot of poetry. Um, which still influences kind of my creative eye, I guess. Um, and I found that what I liked most about the workshop classes was critiquing other people's work. <laughs> um, uh, you know, sometimes when you're so busy um, in school, it's hard to, to sit down and force yourself to write something on the spot. Um, and I do like writing when I have the time and inspiration, but um, <laughs> I've, you know, I've always found it challenging to kind of, to force myself into that, um, which, um, you know, I really applaud authors and illustrators for doing. Um, and I, but I really enjoyed and it came more naturally to, um, to help others kind of uh, shape their work. Um, so I, yeah, I, during my time at Bucknell, I also was on a student literary and art magazine, um, Fire and Ice. So I, I was involved in that. Um, and I took a course um, to work at the, the student um, writing center. Uh, so that was something that I did, I guess, senior year. Um, I, I took the course in junior year and then um, worked with students at the writing center. Um, you mentioned I also did an internship at West Branch, which was really neat because it's um, a professional journal that's that's run by um, Bucknell staff. So I got to be involved in making selections of um, poetry and prose that would be included in um, two volumes of the magazine. And um, I I decided to um, go to NYU's uh, Summer Publishing Institute um, to try and make some of those New York connections and test out living in the big city because I grew up in PA and, um, you know, it was a little bit of a different world. Um, it was also another challenging time period in American history because um, I graduated like during the financial crisis of 09. Um, 
so jobs were slim pickings. A lot of publishers were on hiring freezes. Um, even when I did the NYU Summer Publishing Institute, they, they would tell us that, um, you know, people used to always have offers when they were graduating the program. And, um, you know, it wasn't happening to most of the people there. Um, I actually went back to um, live with my parents for a little while while I was applying for jobs after that. Um, and it wasn't, wasn't until October that I got an internship. So um, yeah, that's how I got my start, I guess. It occurs to me, I'm, I'm forever editing myself in my head, as I think most writers do, because it's frustrating to have to have real conversations and rather than a, a first draft where you know you can rewrite it 20 times. When I say the original plan, not to imply that the plan of eventually going on to open up your own literary agency isn't the best possible plan. Just I assume that at, at some point, because you're studying creative writing, you maybe wanted to be a writer and maybe you were looking at the, the different aspects of, of publishing. And in 2009, I was uh, fresh out of college and, and working as a stockbroker. Uh, I'd been doing that for about six months before the, the market blew up. I was like, oh, I, I guess I got a front row seat for this. Oh, how wonderful and exciting for me. <laughs> so there you are. You're, you're back and your parents are in Pennsylvania. So you've been living in the big city, working publishing, but then you've got to go back to Pennsylvania to apply for jobs. Is there ever a moment where you think, well, maybe publishing, maybe this door is closed after all, and I should look into being an accountant or whatever people who, who don't go into publishing do? Yeah, you know, it's like kind of funny because I did, um, I, I didn't want to feel like a bum. So I did start applying to other jobs. I mean, I had worked throughout college, um, actually worked as a housekeeper at, at the local hospital. Um, and so I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to feel like I was contributing to society and to my family and not being a drain. Um, so I started applying to other kinds of jobs. And I think uh, right around the time that I got the internship, I finally got an interview for another, I don't know, job at a real estate company or something. But I ended up canceling that because I took the internship because it's, you know, that was what my heart was set on. Um, and I, it was at a literary agency, which was something that I, I don't think I had ever even heard of until I went to NYU's program, um, but I found that it was a really good fit for me. Um, and we can go into that if you want. <laughs> um, what do you mean? So, yeah, I mean, I think um, when when we would we would hear um, at the publishing program, like, oh, be open to other aspects of publishing because everyone wants to go into editorial and that's the hardest to get into. But then I would have meaning, they would they would um, have you meet with people from HR or something like that to talk about your resume. And they'd be like, oh, well, this is all editorial, so you should be an editorial. <laughs> um, but I found that, um, I found out about literary agencies. Um, and I found that it was really good fit because um, I did have some interest in the business side, although not as much experience in that. Um, but you could also be still involved in the editorial side. And um, also that the literary agent has like a different kind of relationship with the client where you're working for the client and the editor works for the publishing house, which both have their own benefits, but I really liked the personal relationship of working um, for clients. That makes sense. 
So it becomes uh, clear to you that more or less literary agent is where you want to be because that's going to get you involved most directly with the client, with providing that feedback, with helping to shape stories, which um, sounds like is kind of your jam. Yeah, I mean, I would say it was still open. Um, I mean, I was young and kind of exploring. I did um, I did in, I interview for other jobs um, in editorial, in um in rights, which I ended up working in also. Um, I won a like a, a another organization um, outside of publishing but related to children's books. Um, I also interviewed at a magazine because the NYU program um, is, is half magazine and half um, books. So I was most interested in, in children's books, but I've always had a travel bug. So I did interview at one travel magazine. Um, yeah, so I would say I was open, but it was a difficult time to break in. Um, I didn't have any of the New York experience, um, but yeah, this uh, I think I ended up in the right place, I guess. And I'm always uh, aware that obviously authors are listening to us and they want to get their queries out to you. But I also know that other folks who are thinking, I might like to work in publishing. How can I become uh, the next Janine Lee? And I always want to make sure that I that I make clear more or less some some things that they could do um, a, a short of just up straight up applying to your to your agency now uh, as as maybe an intern. What if you were going to do it right now in uh, 20, which 2022 as we're talking, probably 2023 as folks are listening, uh, what would you do to get your start in publishing today? Um, yeah, I mean, everyone finds their own path. Um, I, I guess I've looked at a lot of resumes. Um, when I was at Sheldon Fogelman Agency, I did a, a lot of the um, kind of screening for candidates for internships and um, things like that. So there's, there's no spe one specific path. Um, but I think, um, you know, things like being involved in university um, magazines and looking for internships. Um, if you can reach out to New York companies, um, a lot there's a lot more remote opportunities now. Um, even if you're not in New York City, which I think is is a nice thing that you know was harder when I was um, starting off. Um, it was harder to get that experience if you weren't in the city. Um, so that's something you can do. I've had people already reach out to me. I'm, I'm going to be honest that I don't have any opportunities right now because I feel strongly that um, even though I was an unpaid intern, um, that people should be paid for their work. So right now I'm kind of <laughs> not in the position to take anybody on in that kind of role. Uh, but it never hurts to reach out um, to, to make connections, ask for informational interviews, um, or to find related work that you can do, um, you know, other, like I had done the internship at Bucknell, other um, literary magazines and things like that. University presses, if they have job opportunities, will be a good place to get some experience that will be something to put on your resume. Somebody hears us and thinks, well, I'll just overcome that objection. It says, I don't mind being unpaid. The payment is just getting to know the industry working with you. If somebody says that, you're going to say. <laughs> I, 
I mean, there, there is something to be said for that. Um, that's kind of, I guess why I took the position that I felt like, um, you know, my opportunities were, were either to take the unpaid internship or I might need to go back to graduate school where I'd be paying, you know, laying out more money. So, um, I can, I can understand where people are coming from and, um, you know, maybe, I, I think there are some companies that will take people on just as a reader that's either unpaid or, or paid very little, but I think, um, you know, if somebody's in the office full time, I just think that that should be a paid position. Um, you know, it's kind of not something that we talked about 10 years ago, but people are, you know, kind of talking about the way that people are paid in publishing these days, um, which is a good conversation. Well, I can't ask for a better segue than that. You start off with uh, Sheldon Folderman, a Fogelman agency, and you're you start in their foreign rights or how do you start with them and are you paid at the time? Yeah, so I got um, a, a paid full-time job there. Um, I, I actually started as the agent assistant. Um, they had somebody <laughs> coincidentally going back to graduate school um, and she was the agent assistant. So I took that role. Um, and then somebody else left a few months after that um, who had been doing the foreign rights job and it was presented to me as a promotion, which, you know, when you're two months in and you can get a promotion opportunity, why not? Um, and it's a small enough agency that I didn't have to completely lose touch with the editorial side. Um, I was able to continue um, reading. They did bring another agent assistant in, but I was able to help her um, continue reading slush and, and things like that. Um, which was which was good, um, you know, because I that was something that I was really excited about. Um, but I also learned more quickly some of the business side um, that comes along with working in rights. So twelve years uh, with with Sheldon Fogelman, does that enthusiasm for for slush stay with you, or does it come to a point where it's oh god, we need some readers in here? I can't I can't look at any more of these queries. So. Um, Fortunately, like I did have help um, reading because we had um, we had Amy uh, Stern, who's the was the submissions coordinator, and then when I went out on maternity leave with my first child, um, we brought in a temp who ended up staying for several years. Um, but she she would kind of serve as a first reader for me often, um, so I could focus more on the things that had merit. Um, and kind of just skim, you know, she would pass other things along and I would just kind of skim um, and agree, yeah, that's not for us. Um, yeah, so that was helpful. I don't think I got tired of it, but I think that um, sometimes you have more or less time for it. <laughs> um, and they had a policy where we were always open to submissions. So um, it can get a little bit of a drain on your energy. <laughs> Something uh, I found um, 
um, just anecdotally, because I teach uh, fiction workshops. So I'll read a lot of student work and give them feedback. And then I'll work with some critique partners and I give them feedback on manuscripts that are on their way to greatness, but aren't there yet. And then I start to feel a little bit of dangerous overconfidence, like, well, what I'm writing must be brilliant by comparison. So I have to, nice thing about having this podcast is I'll read the books of uh, the guests that come on and be reminded that, oh, wait, no, that's where you need to get your game. That's that's where the goalpost should be. Look at what all these brilliant folks out there are doing. When you're um, going through slash day after day, and I'm assuming you're doing a fair amount of that now with your own agency and you're, you're out there looking for talent, how do you recalibrate and, um, and, and, and how much reading are you able to do outside of client work and outside of uh, everything you have to read for the, the business? Yeah, so um, at Sean and Fogelman Agency, they, they had like a, a long history of really um, top-notch clients. So that kind of set the standard. Um, and we had a, editorial meetings where I would have anybody I wanted to take on, I had to share it with the group for everybody to take a look at. And we would have a conversation about it, um, about the piece and the client's potential and if it um, was a fit for the list. So that really pushed me to be uh, selective. Um, also, if we thought that something had potential, but it wasn't quite there, um, we would send an editorial letter and ask them, they revise and resubmit, um, which is, uh, you know, it's, I think a good policy, something that I would continue doing um, on my own. So, yeah, I think one is like sometimes it, it's being patient and waiting for the right thing to come along or for you to find the right thing. Um, because there is a tough competition. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess comparing, you know, not, not just comparing to the slush, um, does it stand out from the slush, but does it stand out from everything else that, you know, is going on in the agency? Is there a reason that this book needs to exist? Um, I've learned that sometimes you take a book on that you think will sell easy and you end up spending years on it. <laughs> um, so you really need to feel passionate about this project, um, that this author needs to write this book and I need to work with them. And I can't say no, if I have any hesitation, then I, I end up um, passing because, um, you know, I can't guarantee that something's gonna be an easy sale. And, um, if it's not, then I want to be committed to working with the author to make a revision, um, make multiple revisions until we get it to where it needs to be. What kinds of things might give you some hesitation? Um, I mean, sometimes I think people just need more practice. Um, I've, I've been doing a lot of uh, participating in a lot of pitch contests. So um, that's interesting that, um, you know, you're seeing things that have a really great hook um, and they don't always deliver. Um, so if sometimes, you know, people just need more practice if you, if you're getting that interest in your ideas, um, you know, join writers groups, join at CBWI and, um, you know, just keep honing your writing because I'm very particular about um, 
having the writing be polished and, and deliver on the promise of, uh, of the hook. Um, I mean, what other kinds of problems? I mean, on the other hand, you can have beautiful writing, but if nothing's happening, then it's a really hard sale. Um, so working, you, on the other hand, you might need to work on your, your plotting. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I really encourage people to join writers groups and, and um, if you can take, um, take courses in, in writing because it's, children's books might look easy, but they're very difficult <laughs> to write. Um, and yeah, you gotta put in the time to get it right. Um, we're going to talk a lot more about the types of projects that you uh, that you're interested in and the way you you work with authors. But let's talk a bit about your your new venture. So 12 years you're with uh, Sheldon Fogelman, and now here in 2022, um, it's time to become the Janine Lee Agency. So what what prompts that change, and what are you going to be able to do now as uh, as the head of your own agency that you weren't able to do in your previous position? Yeah, I mean, every agency operates a little bit differently, I guess, how people as they're coming up <laughs> um, can make a living because it takes a while to generate to generate uh, money as an agent. So, um, you know, I was balancing this the other agency roles, um, you know, doing a lot of tax related work, <laughs> um, doing foreign rights work. Um, and, and just helping other general assistance stuff um, for, for my boss's clients, um, reading his contracts, stuff like that. Um, so I guess I felt two things. One, that I had learned all kind of, it was such a small agency and I, I was involved in all the different aspects of running it so that I felt that I could um, operate my own agency, which is, you know, not something that that everyone can, um, because if you work at a larger agency, you might not learn all of those individual roles um, that it takes to run an agency. Um, but also that as my list grew, um, it just felt harder to manage everything because, you know, I had the agency roles that I needed to get done and, and you know, I was expected to be able to help other people. Um, within the agency at any time, but then I would have my own client projects. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really just a time management thing that I felt like it was um, time to focus on my own clients. I had a, you know, discussion with my husband about if we could do this. And then I had a discussion with my boss about doing this. Um, and he, he, I was lucky that he kind of counter offered that I could um, you know, we could take some jobs away um, and I could focus more on my list. But I think at that, that point, I already um, kind of was getting excited about the idea that I had made the decision um, that I was going to do this. It was exciting to, to start something new that could kind of be my own project. Um, yeah. So what, um, and, and obviously I'm, I'm talking to you early in the game, you're, you're yet to reach your final form of <laughs> what the, what the Janine Lee agency is going to be, but what do you envision? How is your agency going to be different than other agencies? 
what are what are what, what kind of environment are you hoping to foster for your authors and for eventually I assume other agents who might come on and work with you? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It is early, so um, I, I'm kind of taking it one step at a time um, to see where things go. I mean, there are some agents who run their own agency um, and it it just stays them, um, which is one possibility. I do definitely have interest um, uh, kind of in, in mentorship roles. So it's something that I'm thinking about to be able to take other agents on in the future. Um, but I, I guess I wanna feel a little bit more settled and <laughs> um, you know handling this this first um, you know just kind of building up my own list a little bit to have take that time to focus on um, my clients and um, yeah I mean I think <clears throat> there you know a lot of it's the one-on-one -on -one attention that they know that I'm handling everything and they're not you know I'm not bouncing off their contract to another department um, so yeah, I'm, I'm using the same level of care that I'm using on edits that I'm using on contracts and negotiations and um, taking the time to foster those industry relationships, things like that. And there's a, it's always important to note there's a world of difference between you with your wealth of knowledge and experience in publishing now, having your own agency as opposed to someone who's never been an agent, never worked in the industry, who just puts their shingle up online and says, hey, look, I'm a literary agent. That's not somebody who's who I'm interested in having on this show. And that's not somebody that authors should be querying. Whereas you, it's very clear. It's a very clear line from where you've been versus um, not necessarily where you're going, but I, I uh, don't, uh, do you and uh, is, is the goal to become a larger agency or is the goal to live your best possible life and work with your clients that more full time than you were able to while balancing other roles or is it some happy combination of those? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that <laughs> that it's about um, about having balance in life. Um, I mean, publishing, most of us get into publishing because it's books are our passion <laughs> or a passion of ours. Um, but you, you have to remember not to let it become your whole life. Um, so I think, and, and I was encouraged, um, I was encouraged at Sheldon Fogelman agency to, um, you know, to work my day and then go home. Um, so although I would often read on <laughs> subway, um, and I, you know, still um, reading as I'm putting my kids to bed or, <laughs> um, you know, I haven't broken that habit, but I do think that I found a good balance. Like, um, you know, I, I got married and had kids and I've always, you know, been active um, hiking and, and camping and traveling. Um, those are things that also give me fulfillment as a person and, and spending time with my kids. Um, so that was part of the motivation to go out on my own um, so that I could feel like I was doing my clients justice, but also myself, <laughs> um, you know, so that I could take a couple, you know, when I need to, that I can take a couple hours um, when the kids get home to give them attention um, and not feel that, you know, I need to be at my desk because my boss is going to call um, and, you know, have that balance in, I guess, the life balance. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
the boss isn't going to call. She's here. She, she's <laughs> she's on board with everything that's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a nice life hack when you when you when you have children. If your focus is children's books, well, you're reading, you're bonding, you're spending time together, and you're also knocking out some work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've read so many, <laughs> so so much. I think you, I missed the question you asked about you know outside reading time. Um, I I I do read with my kids. I I get stacks of books from the library and I read them with my kids. So it's, you know, um, multitasking, which um, during COVID, you know, <laughs> I had to be multitasking. So um, yeah, we, we learned how to do those things. I, I've read manuscripts, client manuscripts to my kids. And <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you're doing double duty. Um, yeah, as they're getting older, it's fun that I can, and uh, we've read a lot of like, graphic novel um, kind of stuff as uh, I'm growing in that area in my list, I can also be exposing the kids to that, um, which is fun. Well, without getting too overly specific on the internet, you've got two children, are they under 10 or over 10? Uh, six and four. Okay. Gotcha, so a little bit more independent, but still <laughs> still gonna need a, a fair amount of your time forever. It never stops, they, they get in their 30s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. So then uh, having your own your own agency focus on your clients is going to allow you to better balance your life, uh, be a better mom and, and, and also make sure you've got your exercise. And are you when you're doing your work day, do you do like a treadmill desk or do you stop for exercise breaks? How do you get your fitness in? Um, you know what? I got a dog. <laughs> So I have to take a break to walk her at some point before I get the kids from school. So um that's that's <laughs> my exercise. I used to be, you know, when I had free time <laughs> into running and cycling and stuff. But um, but right now that's my hack that we got a dog last year. Um, it, it's something that I always wanted. The kids were a little bit older and easier um, and they started wanting a dog. So we got one and she needs her exercise. So we go out in the woods and take a walk. And um, that's always once or twice a day. So. That's a life hack. So if you don't feel like exercising, your dog's not going to let you forget. You know, we're definitely exercising. Yeah. <laughs> and she makes it enjoyable. <laughs> but now that uh, now that you're in charge, you're you're running the agency, you're you're recruiting talent. I know that as we record this, you're closed to queries, but I assume you're going to open up at some point in the future. What types of projects are you hoping to take on? Yeah, so I, I opened briefly in the summer. Um, <laughs> And the box fills quickly. So, um, you know, I requested a number of things that I'm still working through. So that's why I'm closed. I uh, also had, you know, a bunch of client projects come in and, and life things come in. My family took more time to travel this summer than expected. Um, so, yeah, so right now I'm closed. I will eventually reopen. Um, but I'm, I'm looking for all age ranges. It just I have to have that emotional connection. That's the thing for me. Um, I, I have to feel an emotional connection to the project. Um, really uh, interested in author illustrators. That's something that um, has been growing in my list and I really have a good time working on those. Um, you know, I, I think right now I have to keep the number of novelists a little bit small just because of the amount of time that I have to sit and read novels is, is limited, but um, you know, I, I enjoy 
working with people who have different perspectives. So especially, um, you know, if you don't see yourself represented in my list, that's the kind of people that I want to hear from so I can fill in those gaps. Gotcha. So somebody's looking at your existing client list and says, hey, there's nobody on there like me. Send the query. Maybe you could be the somebody that's on there like you. Yeah. And I mean, if you if you do see somebody like you, of course, that could mean that I, you know, am interested in your voice as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there are there are certainly places that I and and even the the industry as a whole um, are, are lacking in to hear more um, Latin voices and more Black voices and more Indigenous voices was something I don't see a lot of, but would love to, those kind of areas. And I'm sure there's, there's um, you know, people that I'm forgetting and I don't want them to feel left out, more um, disabled voices and, and yeah, anyone who um, doesn't see their voice out there. The esteemed audience knows that sooner or later I'm going to ask you about flying saucers, but I'm also going to ask you about diversity in publishing because it has been uh, has been and is is an issue, um, and we're always looking to increase that diversity. So it sounds like you're actively looking to increase the diverse authors that you're representing. What are you seeing the industry do as a whole, and what does it need to do to get us to a place where we have representation? We can start whatever the next issue is. We can maybe start and turning toward that eventually? Yeah, I mean, I think things like um, We Need Diverse Books ha have been very good for the industry. Um, the, there are publishers that are opening up to, um, they're opening up imprints um, to, to focus on diverse books, but I think um, beyond that, but um, it's something that every imprint should be looking at um, the balance of their list. Um, I think Sheldon Fogelman's list was a little bit unique in, in that, it, um, you know, they did have some more diverse authors who have been around the industry for a long time. Like I was very lucky to work with people like Jerry Pinkney. Um, and a number of people who at the time that they were working had to be closeted, but <laughs> um, gay authors and illustrators, um, classic work. Um, yeah, so there were a number of diverse authors that I got to work with who have been around in the industry and, and taught me that to respect the history that they do have. I think, um, you know, some people overlook that. Um, but I think that it's definitely something that we're still working on. Um, and one thing that's been a challenge, I think, is um, publishers retaining, um, hiring and retaining diverse editors. Um, I think that they bring a really important perspective um, as far as acquiring goes. So for me as an agent, that's something that I would like to see more of, I guess, because I, I do see a lot of agents diversifying their lists and, and publishers, um, I think, are making efforts, but it needs to come from, the, from inside. And it, it's difficult for me to say as a white agent, <laughs> you know, that they need to have more diverse um, people, but I, I do value, um, you know, what 
diverse editors and and other people who work in publishing bring to the table. Gotcha. Um, trying to think, what's the the best follow up to that that won't seem trite? Because um, <laughs> it, it is an issue that we need to continue to work through, but. With, with, with hiring practices, because we have seen some some high profile ex, exits of editors and editors of color, um, and not necessarily because the answer was everybody around me was racist so much. Although although what what they say privately versus what they said publicly that's that's a whole different thing. But there is just the issue of money. Um, I know I've talked to enough literary agents who talked about it takes three to five years to be able to make uh, income full time as a literary agent, as opposed to working at one or two other jobs, uh, working as an editor, you're living in NYC, making 30 grand or less, trying to make that fly. You're definitely going to have to have another job just to you know, afford to be one of four roommates in a studio apartment, I assume. Um, Hopefully, we're going to see publishing break up, not not well, yeah, break up a bit, but also um, move out and stop occupying the same however many blocks there that New York real estate. Let's see people work remote. Let's see people in other states, and then we'll be able to see more diversity. Because when you make the 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 um, uh, the, the gauntlet you have to pass through to get into publishing so narrow that you, you basically have to already have money coming in and have that support system that's gonna that's going to select for a certain type of author which are sorry, a certain type of uh, industry professional which is maybe why we've seen a lot of white privileged faces uh, filling out publishing companies for so long. Do you see publishers now in the wake of the pandemic, knowing that they can get people to be productive from home on Zoom? Do you see them uh, diversifying a bit more and reaching out to places other than New York to spread business? Or is that just maybe wishful thinking on my part that that's going to happen? I think it's too early to tell um, because I think for for so long they've kind of corporations have envisioned that they would be back in the office full time. And I think the reality is becoming more clear that that's most likely not going to happen. It's either going to be a hybrid situation or work from home or certain people will work from home. Um, so I think there hasn't been a lot of a ton of people brought on yet to see where those people are coming from. Um, but that will be interesting to see, I think it's happening faster in agencies um, because a, a lot of them made the switch pre-pandemic. Like we had made the switch pre-pandemic to work from home full-time um, and publishers were, were all full-time in the office until the pandemic hit. Um, so I think it's taking maybe a little bit longer for those kinds of big corporations to, to figure out long-term what um, what it's going to look like, whether they're in the office or hybrid or um, a certain percent work from home. Um, I would be surprised <laughs> if everyone works from home um, full time. Don't you find just anecdotally that you're more productive if you can walk the dog a few times and you're there when you're when your daughters are home? I, I, I am. I mean, <laughs> um, it's something that I I would advocate for, but it's, um, you know, the powers that be that make the decisions. So. 
Well, counterpoint, uh, esteemed audience, if you check the back catalog, when I chatted with uh, Max Brelier, who got his start working in marketing with uh, St. Mar Martin Press, um, he talked a lot about his early 20s being so fantastic because he'd go from work directly to parties for publishing or he all his friends were other literary agents and editors and, and, and authors, and he would spend his time with them and he felt sorry for folks working in publishing during the pandemic who, who weren't able to have that so counterpoint. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the challenges that, um, you know, being in in New York, I used to be able to um, do those kind of after work activities and um, there would be more in person conferences during the day, those kind of things where you would, um, would be able to make personal connections. Um, but I think life in general has changed a lot since the pandemic. Like, you know, I used to, to go out with people not in publishing as well and be able to do things that maybe are not happening as frequently. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I've, uh, as, as we record this, I've had my second booster. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable now, not, not being ridiculous, but I've started going to a league poker night. Uh, again, so it's just nice to go see people and not talk about books. Uh, in fact, poker is the perfect activity because the conversation is going to sit around the game. I, I don't need to know your politics. Let's talk about our cards. <laughs> um, so at this point, I, as I was looking through your client list, trying to see what similarities, I, I did notice that it appeared to be, I didn't, I don't think I saw any uh, photos of male clients at this time, but maybe I, maybe I missed one. It looked like it was very much a, a female centric list. Is that by design or is that just happened to be the photos that are up on the site right now? Um, I, I do represent all women right now. It's, <laughs> it's not really by design. It's just, um, that's who I've ended up working with. Um, yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not biased like, against working with men. Um, yeah, but that's um, mostly women, mostly mothers. Um, I, <laughs> I think I, uh, you know, tend to connect with them well. <laughs> Oh, sure. Yeah. Work with with whoever you like. I just didn't know if it was a it was a policy or just. A oh no 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 no! Uh, <laughs> not biased against my mom. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, going back to this this idea of what project would you most like to see come through the the door? What are you most of you? I know that you want to connect emotionally with the character, but do you have like uh, a genre preference, a style preference? What What's going to turn your head? I don't have a genre preference because I like to have a little bit of a balance um, working with picture books, middle grade, YA, um, and graphic novels. Uh, so I don't want to say one, <laughs> one thing that I'm looking for because, you know, by the time this comes out, it, that hole could be filled. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... If you look at the artists on my site, if you're an artist, that kind of gives you my some of my tastes. Um, looking at the the prose that I've worked on um, can also give you my my writing taste. Um, yeah, it's just unique. I guess I like things that stand out. Um, you know, when I submit something, I want an editor to 
think this is worth this is going to be something worth looking at um you know so they're they're all over the board but people that are maybe a little bit innovative um people that have something important to say that hasn't been heard before um people who i'm interested in nonfiction as well people who uncover untold stories that are really fascinating um you know tell you telling stories are always recycled so if you're telling a story that feels familiar telling it in a fresh way um i'm i'm drawn to verse and graphic novels and um you know which is a growing field um yeah it's, it's hard <laughs> it's always hard to to narrow down but it has to be something that I want to read over and over again and I want to fight for <laughs> well maybe this uh will, will help because um as far as giving you an idea for your taste when we had talked uh back in October of of 2017 when uh when your seven question interview is available now at middlegradeninja.com with Steve audience go check it out and I'll link to it in the show notes uh you had said then that your top three favorite books were The Giver, Charlotte's Web and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that still reflective or are there other books that you'd like to add to that list at this point I mean I would say those were those were some of the books that were like as a child <laughs> that were really meaningful to me. And I think um, that is kind of still reflective of my taste that, um, you know, that I, I was drawn to those books because I felt an emotional connection with the characters. It made me think and feel, um, I, the giver in particular made me, you know, uh, think about <laughs> the world in different ways and, um, you know, unfortunately, we, we've lived through a lot more of um, <laughs> those sorts of dystopian realities than I ever expected to. Um, but I think I, you know, I like kids that challenge or books that challenge kids um, to to think about the world in, in new ways outside the little box that they might live in. Um, yeah, I think certainly since then, um, the the middle grade field has diversified, and you know I, I like to see that reflected as well. Um, but it still has to have that heart for me. Um, I think right now I and a lot of other people are looking for joy. <laughs> so um, some of the things that that I um, I'm drawn to are, are a little bit darker because I think uh, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about serious subjects for kids, but I do think we need to balance that. So maybe that's something that I'm looking forward to, to balance with more joy. Um, and um, yeah, maybe that's something <laughs> that kids are not getting enough of on their own um, these days and, and we need to look for. Gotcha. So books that maybe will acknowledge the darkness that is that is so obvious you can't possibly miss it if you've been living in America these these past however long it's been since that awful man came down the 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 
the escalator. Um, you, you can't possibly uh, miss some of the darkness that, that's happening, but still makes room for joy despite that while acknowledging that it exists. Am I, am I understanding that more or less? Yeah, I think so. Gotcha. Uh, and so when we talk about darkness, you mentioned the giver, which uh, is a is a in some ways a very dark story, uh, literally. Um, I guess it, it starts off on black and white, so it's 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 very dark. Um, when you're talking about darkness in children's literature, do you have a threshold, or I'm I'm assuming you do have a threshold for this is too dark. If you go this dark, we're done. We we can't come back from this. Where is that point for you? I think it's a question of age appropriateness um, because you can go a lot darker in YA than you can in middle grade um, or picture books, certainly. So yeah, there's kind of a dial, I guess. <laughs> and it's like, are you, you know, um, are you gonna scare the children? <laughs> Because the reality is scary, um, you know, if we let ourselves go there, but, um, you know, then if this book has to deal with a, a very harsh reality, then it needs to maybe be for an older audience or um, it needs to be to maybe told in a different perspective. Something coming to mind, um, this is actually a book that one of my clients um, did before she came to me, but um, Meg Wiviet wrote a book on Crystal Knock, a picture book, uh, but it's told through a cat perspective. Um, so, you know, there are, there are books that deal with very serious topics for the youngest ages, but always thinking about ways to make it accessible and not too scary, I guess. Um, yeah. And while we're uh, speaking a little bit of, about darkness, something that's been weighing on my mind heavily, and I assume has been weighing on an esteemed audience's mind, um, and, and part of the problem with the with uh, recording these recording these conversations and then releasing them out uh, just as they uh, in the order they were recorded. Um, it's all good to me, esteemed audience. I already had the great conversation. You hear it when you hear it. <laughs> but um, as I've talked with some other literary agents and never asked them about Barnes and Noble because Barnes and Noble happened after the conversation. But as you and I are chatting, uh, Barnes and Noble not long ago made, it seems like has made the decision to only carry about 2% of the top uh, hardbacks for middle grade and, and YA. So basically they're going to keep their Harry Potters. Uh, Angie Thomas might make the shelves some other top top names and everybody else is going to be relegated to paperback or worse is what it sounds like. Is my summary of that accurate? Is there some nuance that I've missed? And if, if it is somewhat accurate in the face of that, how do, how do children's books respond? That's going to be a, a huge blow to the market, isn't it? I think um, there's a little bit of nuance to it. Um, but the reality, from my perspective, um, books that were sold to major publishers, it used to be rare that Barnes and Noble decided not to carry it. And you would like hear about it and oh no, like Barnes and Noble is not going to carry it and that's going to kill the book. But it seems like it's gotten, it's gotten harder to get your book shelved in Barnes and Noble in the time period that I've been working here, I would say 
more so like it's kind of picked up recently that it's gotten harder to get your book on the shelves there. Um, but I don't know yet if that's going to be the same level of <laughs> weight that it used to carry, um, you know, or if Barnes and Nobles is always carrying it online. I don't know what percent of their sales are online now um, versus people that are going into the stores. Um, I, I think one of the challenges how to um, how to reach the market because in children's books in particular, um, like in parent groups, so I'll, you know, periodically somebody asks for book recommendations, and it's good to see the people who are in touch um, rep, rec, recommending recent books, but there are always those voices who are recommending um, the same books that they grew up reading, um, which makes it so that those classics um, can have a really nice long shelf life. Um, but I think that it makes it harder for the, the new books to, to find their audience, I guess. Um, kids, they can go to the library, but it's harder for them to, <laughs> to find, you know, teachers and parents and librarians are often recommending things or, um, you know, a friend might recommend a book, but they're not reading the the journals that the librarians are reading that are reviewing new books, you know? So we have to think about, um, you know, how do we reach parents and how do we reach kids? And um, I haven't figured that out yet, but <laughs> it's a challenge for sure. Um, so that they know to go and seek those books that might not be on the shelves. So uh, maybe we, Barnes and Noble becomes more like Target where it's, um, just you know, one shelf, and these are the new books that we're recommending, which is great for those new books, or Costco. This is great for these books because we're going to sell them in bulk. Um, but everybody else, you know, it's it's more on the reader to to find them and seek them out. And um, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I was hoping you would have all the answers. <laughs> I was <laughs> hoping we could get this knocked out. <laughs> I, uh, I've been uh, fairly vocal about uh, my, my disdain for this decision that Barnes & Noble has made because I, I went to the Barnes & Noble right afterward. I hadn't, you know, I've got a couple of indie bookstores here locally that I prefer to, to go to. Uh, when I'm deciding where to spend my book dollars. Of course, people are good enough to be always sending me free books for the show that keeps me pretty much in reading material without having to go too far from my house. But I went to a Barnes and Noble. Uh, and these these are my views, not Janine's Lee's, not Janine Lee's, just, just me talking. But uh, when I looked at the Barnes and Noble, they saw that the entire back of the store, the, you know, uh, um, coming out um, about about as much of as much space as a drugstore might devote to um, their cold medicines and everything else. The entire back uh, was just toys priced over the market because it's a great place to look around, pull it up on your phone, like oh I can get that much cheaper here or, or elsewhere. Um, and 
and they had Blu-rays that were marked significantly more expensive than you could get them also. Like there was a $50 copy of the Blu-ray of the newest Jurassic World movie, which imagine you spend 50 some odd dollars for that movie. And then you get it home and it's just a mess. What a, what a, it's, it's not a, it's a movie I'm sad to have paid uh, 10 bucks to see in the theater, let alone $50. That's not going to be a good experience anyway. Um, but I see this and, and you mentioned uh, like a, like a, like a Walmart or a, um, a, a Meyer or any place where, you would just get the one or two uh, shelves of books and those are the big sellers and that's it. And that's already what I thought their their children's section looked like. Now, I, I repent a little bit because they had my book out uh, cover first. Like, okay, well, that, that, that's, that's one good decision. Fair enough. Um, but they, you know, they had uh, an entire wing for Harry Potter and Harry Potter merchandise and then a relatively small amount for those middle grade books. And I know that that's going to get smaller. So almost regardless of Barnes and Noble's continued health, which hopefully they've got a new CEO. I think this is the fourth or fifth in eight years uh, that, that they've got. Hopefully this is the one that, that turns things around for them. I want Barnes and Noble to be healthy. I want I want them to continue to compete with Amazon and, and to continue to bolster reading. That would be ideal for me. But in the event Barnes and Noble goes away or goes to a spot where they focus on selling more um, journals and things and fancy pens and cards and copies and things that aren't books and specifically aren't middle grade books, obviously publishers are still going to be able to reach um, schools and libraries in a way that uh, independent authors can't. But it does, uh, an argument I'm having with myself is how much value is there still in seeking traditional publication if you can't get into the bookstore, at least the biggest bookstore, but you can get into some indie bookstores and be prominently featured elsewhere as an independently published author, and you get 70% royalties or a significantly higher return than you can with a traditional publisher. What would be the counter argument to that? Why would a traditional publication, con, uh, traditional publication, still be the more attractive option in the face of all of that? Um, yeah, I think it's it's a lot of to do with distribution. Um, I'm, unfortunately, no one gets the marketing dollars that they deserve in publishing, but it, it is about that distribution in children's books. Those school and library sales are very very important still. Um, that we're fortunate that we have a library system <laughs> that we do, um, although it's threatened every day. Um, so yeah, I think th those distribution channels and also into the bookstores, um, yeah, it's, it's sad to see Barnes & Noble taking less, but it, um, I think, you know, you mentioning your book being at your Barnes & Noble, I do think that I'm seeing a little bit of a more of a regional trend that um, people's local Barnes and Nobles are more likely to carry their books than, um, you know, every Barnes and Noble across the country. Um, indie bookstores uh, are still important, but, you know, the major publishers, they're, they're still going to get the, the top picks there because they do have, um, you know, they're putting their stamp on the book. Um, there's also an incredible value in getting, you know, the, the best editors in the business to work on your book and, um, you know, the, the cover design and um, what marketing you do get, <laughs> um, you know, 
uh, if you're lucky, you might you might be sent to conferences um, where you're reaching those librarians and booksellers um, where the publisher can put the bill for that. But of course, um, one thing that you can't get independently is representation by Janine Lee. My God, uh, what we haven't talked about and what I would definitely want to make sure we, we touch on is assuming that when you reopen to Aquarius, somebody does turn your head, they have the story, there's no hesitation, you love it. What happens next? What can, uh, what can an author look forward to in, once they've signed with the Janine Lee Literary Agency? Yeah, so the first thing is that we would go over the agency agreement and sign that. Um, I think it's important to have that written down so you know what to expect from me and, and what you'll pay me in return um, because it is a business relationship. Um, and then we set to work. Um, I, I am editorial, so I give notes um, on, on projects before they go out. We usually go through a couple of revisions. Um, to try and get it polished as much as we can um, so that the editor is seeing it in its best condition. Um, and we're trying to cross off those reasons that they might say no. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm very particular about putting my list together. I try to keep tabs on who's where and what they're looking for um, so that I can target those submissions to the right people. Um, and then if we're lucky, we get an offer. Um, second best is that we might get a revise and resubmit request. And then I'm happy to talk those through with clients. Um, and if that doesn't work, um, we reevaluate. We see what feedback we got. Do we want to make any tweaks before it goes out? Or we set to the next list of editors that we're going to submit to. Um, assuming we do get an offer, I, you know, I negotiate them carefully to get the best offer I can. I talk it through with clients. And um, like I said, I'm very careful about contracts as well, but I learned a lot. Um, my former boss was an attorney. That's how he got into the business, um, taking on people like Maurice Sendak for legal issues and then eventually became uh, a literary agent. But um, yeah, like you want to have somebody that's going to read through the contract with a fine tooth comb and not just <laughs> pass it off. Um, and then I guess there's also the question of, uh, you know, trying to retain as many rights as you can and look for other opportunities um, outside of just the basic book sale. Uh, you mentioned um, as far as like getting editorial feedback, you're, you know, you, 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 you like to give the editorial feedback. So presumably before you ever submit to an editor, uh, you and the, and the client have gone through the manuscript once or twice, you've already given them feedback. So by the time you get that uh, feedback from an editor, you've got a pretty good idea whether that's warranted or if it's coming completely out of left field, or if they've just got an, a vision for a book, that's not the book that you're trying to submit, right? It often is, um, you know, that it, it just wasn't right for them. You know, you might get feedback and you say, okay, this wasn't right for them. Um, but sometimes you'll either, you know, several people mention the same thing or um, one person has a brilliant idea that they throw out there um, and it can lead you to, to make it even better because um, 
you know, I'm doing one level of editing, but an editor is going to do the next level of, of deep editing. So. And, and, you know, like writers, I'm always learning and, um, you know, there might be something I miss. Well, sure. I mean, that could happen, but you've got 12 years experience behind you and you get a lot more at bats with editors and, and learning different tips from, from other manuscripts. I mean, you've got a wealth of expertise, which is, which is why we we're, we're coming to you uh, to begin with. If somebody comes out with something left, like have you, I like your girl in a horse book, but have you considered setting it in space? And of, of course we haven't, that's a pretty major departure. If it's, if it's something that that's probably an extreme example, but if it is something that's going to require a lot of rewriting and revising, I'm a assuming you're doing some kind of evaluation or uh, getting some kind of idea of, hey, how, if we do this, if we take the time and we do this, how serious is it that you're actually going to be interested once we've done it? Is there a way to gauge that? Yeah, I mean, I think editors try to be pretty clear about that, whether they're passing and giving a reason for passing. Um, you, you should be able to tell, your agent should be able to tell if they're passing and they're just trying to give you a basic reason. Um, why they're passing, then, you know, that's, that's something we'll take into consideration, but it doesn't get as much weight as somebody who says, I love this project. Um, I don't think I can get it through acquisitions because X, Y, and Z, um, but I'd love to see it again. That's the kind of um, thing that we'll take more seriously. Um, sometimes they, they may even ask to speak with the author or they might write a more extensive editorial letter. Um, that's what I would consider revise and, and resubmit. Um, and that gets, <laughs> you know, that gets the priority. If you, if you get that le level of interest, um, then I think it's almost always worth pursuing that to, to try it. Um, even if it doesn't end up selling to that editor, then you might still come out with a stronger manuscript as a result. Um, the the passes with some feedback i would say as i've gotten more experience you're right that those are less often helpful <laughs> because we we do try to address um you know those kind of surface level issues that editors might pass for um in advance and we can often say you know yeah this is just not right for them we'll we'll keep going and try to find the right editor uh, so you, when you when it's when it's ideal, it's you know the editors on board. It's just how do we overcome the objections of the acquisitions board, and that's going to be useful for you to figure out because even if this editor doesn't take on the book, there's going to be acquisition boards elsewhere that might have some of those same types of objections, right? Yeah, yeah, and I would say that um, that those committees are getting kind of tighter and tighter with their belts. So editors know that they have to take something that's pretty well edited um, to editorial and to acquisitions. Are there some overall trends you've noticed in terms of what's what acquisitions boards are looking to require more just generically on, on every book that comes through? I think it's, it's like, um, it depends on the publisher because some publishers or some imprints have more freedom um, to take things on because they like it and they can take more of a risk and others are more, well, they're getting more commercial or something. And, you know, it has, 
it has to be the thing that Barnes and Noble is going to pick up, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a little bit of like knowing knowing the editors and knowing the publishers and the imprints and um, where a book fits, I guess, what the niche is. And as far as marketing and trying to find an audience once the book is actually published, uh, number one, obviously come on this show. That's that's the most important thing any author can do to, to promote their story. Um, but what kinds of things are you working with your clients to, regardless of the marketing budget that the publisher has um, in a world where maybe Barnes & Noble isn't going to put that hardback or the paperback available? What are ways you're encouraging your clients to, to think outside the box and still connect with their audience? Um, as, as things open back up, um, in-person um, events can, can be a big hit um, for children's book authors. Um, I know I have someone who is recently doing a tour and going to schools where she would sell a hundred books, which is awesome. You know, you can do that repeatedly. Um, and then hopefully that kind of snowballs from there that, you know, as readers read your book, they tell other people about it. Um, that's kind of how <laughs> books spread um, word of mouth. There's not, you know, it's not like a movie where there's ads on TV for, for books. Um, yeah. So teachers, tell each other and librarians and, and, and students um, telling each other that this was a good book um, <laughs> and read it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to these days have some kind of public presence, have a website that kids can go to with resources um, if, you're, if you're open to it, um, be on social media so that um, you know, you can plug your book or you can just be someone that people think of. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that there's no <laughs> secret sauce that I found yet. And <laughs> maybe I wouldn't give my secrets away. because <laughs> 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 I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what all you can do as an author that a lot of it still comes down to the publisher, publisher, is responsible to get those reviews and to um, get the shelf placement. And there's not a lot that you have control over as far as that goes. No, I want concrete, foolproof, works every time plans. <laughs> Uh, which I'm, I'm now confident that you have. You're just not going to share for free on a podcast, which is shrewd. That's smart. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, when, you're, when you're talking with your client, will you recommend that they reach out to a publicist? Do you talk at all about this, the, the strategy for how they're going to promote the book once it's uh, launched? Um, it's, that's not something that I really push because I'm not sure. I haven't seen yet the value of it, but it's it's not something that I've um, a lot of experience with, so I don't want to throw them under the bus either. <laughs> it, it may help, you know, depending on your situation, it, it may help, um, particularly if um, if your publisher isn't giving your book a lot of attention. 
And when you're evaluating uh, a new author as a potential client, um, assuming that they've already uh, passed all the hurdles of you love their book, you've got some ideas for some feedback maybe, but you don't have the hesitation. You know this is a story that you want to devote yourself to. Now it comes time to evaluate the author. Are you going through evaluating their social media presence, seeing who they are online? What kinds of things are you looking for that might shift your decision one way or the other? I do look at it. Um, I mean, unless there were red flags, <laughs> I don't think that um, it really makes or breaks my decision. But I would say that <clears throat> the people that I'm working with are are taking their their craft seriously, and I can kind of see that <clears throat> they're getting to know other writers or illustrators, um, and you know they interact with those people online or. Um, they're, they're taking opportunities uh, for, for getting mentorship, things like that, that they're serious about it. So sometimes, a lot of times that's reflected and you, know, you might see an active social media because they're involved with other authors, but that's not always uh, transparent on social media. Sometimes you know, you're, you're involved in groups that are on other platforms. Um, so that's kind of something that I would ask about to know, um, you know, to know that they're taking this serious to to make a career of it, um, and that they would have other people that, to share their work with. Um, I no longer have a second reader, so <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to be the only eyes that somebody has that they have um, critique partners and, and things like that. Would you recommend an author uh, hire an editor ahead of submission? Um, it's not something I've ever recommended, <laughs> but um, I guess it wouldn't turn me away either because it would be a sign that you were, were serious about the project. And I, I've seen enough um, of how those editors work that as long as it's someone professional, I know that they're um, they're not writing the book for you. They're they're giving you suggestions to help strengthen it, which is I think um, is a good thing that somebody's putting that level of care into their work before they go out on submit um, submission. Well, if the editor's writing the book for them, then get rid of this Joker client and hire the editor. That sounds like <laughs> I got out the middle person. <laughs> <laughs> so okay so uh, that that might be a, a decent thing and when you're looking at, at somebody online if you're seeing that they've only got 52 twitter followers that's not a deal killer it's just more uh, but if, but if somebody does come to you and says hey this is my one book i've always dreamed and now i've put all of my passion into this story i'm done go forth and sell it that's going to be less attractive to you than somebody who says hey i'm actively courting a long-term career do you have conversations with them about what does your career look like five years from now, 10 years from now, that sort of thing? Yeah, I do um, have conversations. A lot of times when people come to me, they have either multiple things already drafted or they have other ideas that they talk through. And I make sure that like I'm interested in, in what they're interested in, I guess, so that our, our genres and interests overlap. Um, if somebody wrote one children's book and 
but they really want to be an adult author, for example, that wouldn't be a fit for me. <laughs> I'm have to, um, sorry, I really love this, but I think you need to, to find somebody that um, a better fit for your whole body of work, because I think otherwise it's, there's so much investment up front to get that one book sold um, and you want to be able to, to continue to build um, off of that. So part of that investment's not just going to be that book, it's building the long-term career and, and the many books that are going to be revenue streams for the author and, and for the agency. Yeah. That makes sense. Janine Lee, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? <laughs> I have not um, seen any personally. I do have some family stories that <laughs> of ghosts, ghost tales. So I won't, uh, I won't say I've seen any, but they could be out there. <laughs> You've heard enough compelling evidence from people you love and trust. Yeah. You know, I was a lot more skeptical before I started asking that question of, of authors and editors and agents, the people I respect most in the world. And I keep hearing these compelling stories. And I'm aware that a lot of times they're coming from fiction authors, professional liars who are good at crafting compelling stories. I know. But you know what? It's it's turned my head. Like, huh? They're they're obviously very they're, they're very very much could be something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I don't know. We had some some family stories, like deceased loved ones <laughs> doing things after they passed. So <laughs> I won't get more specific, but um, I guess there's a place in my heart for those ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> completing their unfinished business <laughs> that's the kind of story that even if it's not true it's it makes the world more pleasant to think that it could be right yeah yeah i guess so i'm watching our time it's it's flown by <laughs> i never know where it all goes it, it, it just goes uh this has been a privilege and a pleasure i so appreciate you making time today for for esteemed audience and and for me um, my final question for you is, is always some variation. Uh, if there was one or two or bits of advice you would like to impart to all of the authors who are watching us or listening to us right now, the things that might make a difference and might make it more likely that they're going to find publishing success, what would you tell them to do? Um, I, I touched on this a little bit, but I think one of the big things for me is... Um, like find community, um, don't write in a vacuum. You, it's good to, to find people that can give you feedback on, on your projects. Um, but I think it's also good that we learn from seeing what other people are working on and, and to, to give feedback and kind of create a community. And, um, you know, one of the marketing secrets <laughs> I think is um, is that community because then other authors will talk up your book or they'll be available. You know, your critique partner becomes a best-selling author and then they'll blurb your book. Um, so when you're starting out, start building that community of other authors and illustrators, and I think that it can go a long way for you. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience uh, find out more? But they've just heard about how incredibly competent uh, that you are as an agent. I know that they want to get in touch with you and follow you for advice, if not uh, to submit a query. So where can they follow you online uh, and on social media and all that good stuff? 
Yeah. Um, if you go to my website, JanineLee.com, um, that'll link to, to everything else. I think um, I do have a Twitter page under my name. Um, I try to tweet out things that might be helpful sharing, you know, an interesting tidbit or often um, sharing when there are pitch contests coming up, which um, I often check those out, even if I'm closed to queries, just to, to see if there's something that sparks my interest and I might request that somebody submit uh, work. So even though I'm closed right now, I do still have things I requested um, when I was open and things that I've requested since because I can't resist um, <laughs> looking at those things. So, um, so yeah, I think that my Twitter page can be helpful in that way. Um, and then on Instagram, you can, I, I made an agency page on Instagram where you can um, see agency news and try to keep that up to date. Um, of course, it's always a little bit behind because there are contracts that we can't announce yet, but um, I should have some more announcements soon. Um, and then I also have a personal Instagram where, I don't know if you wanna see where I traveled, <laughs> you can just to see me as a person. Um, and I also, have a Pinterest where I've uh, been pinning for a long time books that I enjoyed to get a taste of um, what I like to read. Esteemed audience members who peace out after the last question before we do this, uh, this little bit of a wrap up, you miss out on the exclusives. Did you hear what I heard? Close to queries, but still reading those pitch contests, get involved in those pitch contests. It sounds like that's a good way to bump in the greats like Janine Lee. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, I I have taken on people through Kidlet Art Postcard and through PB Pitch most recently. So um, definitely hit up those contests. And as always, esteemed audience, for the entire back catalog of this fantastic show, all those wonderful episodes just waiting for you, plus written interviews with thousands of agents, authors, editors, including a seven-question interview with today's guest, Janine Lee, head to middlegradeninja.com. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.